Today on the podcast, things we're going to talk about today, friendship, finding oneself, being present, dealing with grief. Next, with my guest, author Tim Madigan, his book is called I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Mr. Rogers. We explore that next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Hey, welcome to the podcast. My name is Joe Foley. I'm a dad, a parent, a crazy busy deal, just like you in this world. <laughs> I'm busy. You're busy. We're really busy. And I really want to say thank you. Thank you. Right over there. Thank you for being here. And this is the first time. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. I know it's time's limits. And I really do appreciate it. Like I said, so you choose spend time. I mean, listening means a lot. It really does. I'm not an expert. I'm on a journey just like you trying to figure this stuff out. One day at a time, really. Seriously. That's why I do the podcast. Do a few. If I'm learning, I'm learning something, I ask. I ask questions and you can join along for the ride for the journey because life is a journey, I guess. And if, if any father's listening today and at this time, this recording is it's the day before Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I have a quick story before we get into the uh, interview with Tim Madigan. I wanted to talk about something special happened to me yesterday. My son's kindergarten graduation. It's it's kind of funny. And um, you say kindergarten graduation. That's crazy, crazy stuff. <laughs> Well, next time, I don't want to share a little story about my, me and my son. And uh, let's say it was his graduation. The time of this recording, it was his graduation from kindergarten. It was exciting. All the parents are there. And, all, and, and it was kind of a movie because the teachers did great. They had a little musical and everything like that. Well, I, I want to let you know, it's kind of a thing I wanted to share. They're going around and asking every kid what they want to do, like being a firefighter, a swim teacher, a doctor, a vet. And my son goes, I want to be a podcaster. Um, I was a very proud dad at that time. I had a little bit of tear in my eyes because that meant a lot to me. You know, it's true. They are watching and they're seeing what you do and they do pay attention. Next up, my guest, Tim Madigan, award-winning newspaper journalist, author, speaker, and the author book, I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Mr. Rogers. And this interview, we talk about his other book he wrote too, Patrick O'Malley, about grief. The book was Getting Grief Right. Talk about his friendship with Mr. Rogers. We talk about, it's okay to talk about emotions as a person, a man, it doesn't matter what gender, but it's important. You can talk about emotions, how important to be a father and being present. You know, nowadays with cell phones, I do it too. We try to be fully present, but that, that, that light next to you always comes on and distracts you. Going through loss and dealing with grief, that could be the hardest thing. It doesn't have to be loss of death, but it can be loss of anything like divorce, loss of a friendship, but mostly about loss of death. I mean... It's a very interesting conversation. This is a great conversation. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Well, thank you, Joe. It's really good to be talking to you this morning. I, one thing I always want to ask you, how did your relationship, your friendship with Rogers, Mr. Rogers, actually, make you a better dad and a better husband? I think it, it just made me a better human being. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was part of my healing as a human being. And, you know, and I think that, those things you just mentioned go hand in hand. Uh, the more whole you can be as a human being, the wiser, more compassionate you can be as a human being, the better father uh, and husband you can be. And, you know, and I think that kind of the foundation of Fred's human greatness was his ability to be present to people, be present to life, uh, to be able to kind of listen uh, to whatever uh 
another person was saying without his own kind of agenda, without being preoccupied and then responding from, you know, this, that same kind of pure uh, place uh, with wisdom, compassion, love, and I think most importantly, never judgment. And so, you know, I aspire to that every day and I fail every day, but it, you know, it did, he helped me work through some things, but he also, you know, taught me, I think, to be a little more present. And, um, and I think that's valuable, so valuable as a, uh, as a father and as a husband and, and helped me work through, through some, some things left over from, from my childhood that I think, uh, had made me aware, more aware of some things as I, as I interacted with my own children. How did you um, meet Fred Rogers? Well, I'm a journalist. I'm a new, I was a newspaper reporter for many years. In the fall of 1995, I was working on a story about violence on television and how it affected children. And a, and a, and a colleague of mine here in Fort Worth suggested that I interview Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Rogers for that story. And so that was a great idea. And I made the necessary arrangements and actually talked to Captain Kangaroo uh, on a day in uh, October of 1995 and had a great interview with him. And then a few minutes later, the phone rings and it's Fred. <laughs> and so... We had this long conversation, and uh, and one thing that kind of stood out for me in the, uh, about that was late in the conversation, uh, and I don't really remember the context, but he said to me, Tim, do you know what the most important thing in my life is right now? And I said, well, Mr. Rogers, we just met. How could I possibly know that? And he said, speaking to Mr. Tim Madigan on the telephone, and there's something about the way he said it where I knew he's being absolutely genuine. And that is kind of goes to what, you know, I think we'd been visiting about a little bit before is his ability to be present um, to life. And, you know, so when you were with him, you were the most important person in his life. And uh, it was really a remarkable thing to be the beneficiary of and, and a remarkable thing to uh, witness him bestow on other people. And then following that, I was he invited me to Pittsburgh to spend four days with him to uh, write a profile on Fred himself. And that's really where our friendship began. And and that was in the fall of 1995. And, and as unlikely as it still seems to me until he died in 2003, I considered him to be one of my best friends. What was it like visiting with him for four days during the time you interviewed, interviewed him for a profile? Well, it was remarkable and it was very intense from the very beginning. Um, I remember, you know, vividly the moment we met him, him kind of walking down the hall and greeting me and, and inviting me into this little office. He, uh, he out in the public television station in Pittsburgh and we talked for a good long time. Um, but then he said, he started talking about this, his, his best friend who a guy named Jim Stumbaugh, who had been a childhood friend and, and really kind of helped Fred through some very difficult times in his childhood. And, but Stumbaugh had died about a month before our interview. And so Fred was telling me about Jim and the effect he had on his life and his own grief and how he, he uh, was angry at cancer and how he expressed his grief. And it was a, I remember he had been looking out the window, speaking even more softly than usual and, and uh, into this beautiful autumn day. And he turns to me and he said, you're ministering to me, Tim. He said, by listening, you minister to me. And it was certainly an unusual moment um, for a reporter to have in the middle of an interview. Uh, but with Fred, there was never any kind of this artificial interview subject, interviewer type thing. It was just two human beings talking to one another. and. 
And then we had other conversations as personal and as intense throughout the weekend. And I watched him film a program. And then he asked me to go to church with him on Sunday morning before I flew back to Texas. And I did. Something I think quite remarkable happened during the part of the service when people, the minister asked people to share their joys and concerns. Someone talks about cancer or new job or new baby or this or that. And the last person to speak, I desperately wanted to turn and look at her because she seemed kind of crazy. Um, she launched into this long and deranged and disjointed diatribe against war. She just went on and on and on and on. And you could just sense the level of mortification rising in the sanctuary. And you could just almost hear the poor minister thinking to himself, uh, what tactful thing could I possibly say to get this woman to sit down and be quiet? Well, eventually she did. And as one, the people just kind of exhaled and said, you know, who let her in kind of thing. Uh, Except the guy sitting next to me who leaned over and whispered in my ear, that poor dear. Don't you know that at some point in that woman's life, she suffered terribly because of war. And then at the end of the service, when she was being ostracized, it was Fred and Fred alone who went up to her and took her in his arms and spent a long time listening to whatever it was about war that had caused her such pain, whether it made sense or not. Because to Fred, the only thing that mattered was was that it made sense to her. And, you know, and I think that a really good example of what human greatness human greatness looks like. Well, was one of the things I remember you, I heard you talk and mention about your book. I'm, I'm proud of you, your life and friendship with Mr. Rogers is about the time about your brother. I remember listening about, and this was actually in the other, the documentary. I saw the piece in the documentary, um, Mr. Rogers and me. I don't know if you like to, to talk about that because that was, that was very moving. Well, I, my brother, uh, my brother and I, was a year younger than me, and we grew up in this little town in northern Minnesota, and he and I were very close. And uh, in fall of 1998, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, and um, his name is Steve. And uh, and when I learned, found out about it, you know, Fred was the second call I made after calling my wife. And so Fred was a part of this journey that we took with Steve. Um and for Steve had, Fred used to call my issues the Furies. And uh, Steve had had them too, big time. Uh, but once he got sick, uh, you know, things just radically changed in his life. I mean, he became more present himself. He found peace in his life. It changed the way he was, he related to his own family. And, and, uh, and it kind of we had been estranged for a few years and it kind of restored our relationship. And so I would share these things with Fred and and Fred would say, uh, Steve is teaching us all now. And then uh, about two weeks before he died, the, the tumor had encircled his spinal cord. And it was this. My brother was a big strapping guy, was paralyzed from the chest down and he was confined to his hospital bed in his living room in Davenport, Iowa. And, and Fred calls um, one morning. And my mom answers the phone. We were all there and, and you know, she was all, you know, hello, this is Fred Rogers calling from Pittsburgh. And my mom gets all excited, you know, because uh, he was Fred Rogers after all. Uh, but then she brings the phone upstairs and hands it, you know, to my brother. And um, and they have this amazing conversation during which Steve tells Fred that uh, the cancer is the best thing that ever happened to him. And uh you know, knowing Fred as I did, I, at the other end of the phone, I'm sure he was kind of doing figurative cartwheels because 
you know, he clearly Steve had found something in, through his illness that most people never find. And that is kind of the essence of life. But anyway, at, at another point in this conversation, Fred does something, again, quite remarkable, where he asked my brother to pray for him. And, you know, and I think that logic would seem to dictate that it should be the other way around. Um, but Fred believed um, that anyone who had suffered as my brother had suffered must be extremely close to God. And, and therefore, Fred genuinely wanted Steve's intercession in his life. And I, you know, I can tell you that as long as Steve was capable of praying, he received it. And then there's an amazing email that Fred sent me in the night Steve actually died. And so he was very, very intimately a part of that journey and, and uh, brought a lot of grace and comfort to it. There's one thing that was interesting in the title of your book. I am, I'm proud of you, your life and lessons from Mr. Roger, but remember you were writing a letter to Mr. Roger asking him if he was proud of you. That was kind of touching, actually. Well, I did. And when I met him in the fall of 1995, he, he said he was glad to be my friend. And, and uh, you know, and I thought, well, okay, Fred wants to be friends. I'll give it, you know, I'll certainly take him up on it. And so I started to write to him, uh, just read rather superficially at first. Just I'd send him a story I was proud of or about this or that. But there's a, I like to say there's a real risk in being a friend with Fred Rogers or someone like him because he wasn't interested in talking about necessarily the superficial things in life. He didn't want to talk about football or TV or anything else. He wanted to know what was really going on with you. And uh, on the the wall of his office in Pittsburgh, there was a quote from the book, The Little Prince, that said, what is essential is invisible to the eye. And so Fred believed, or Fred's goal in life was to find out about what he called your essential invisibles. Uh, what what was it about the people he met? What was it about his neighbor that didn't meet the eye? He also liked to quote his friend, the Catholic writer Henry Nouwen, who said, "What is most personal is most universal," and uh, which I think uh, I've always interpreted to mean, and I think I'm accurate that the things we most try to conceal from one another are invariably the things we have most in common, you know, the, our pain, our shame, our anger, our sadness, our fear, um, that we're also good at disguising uh, for fear that, you know, that if people really knew how we felt uh, that they really wouldn't like us. Um, but Fred believed that, you know, as, as I said, that, you know, those were the things we had most in common with other people. That's kind of the, that's kind of the human condition. And, but he, but he want he wanted people to know that you didn't have to go through life that way alone. So he really wanted to know. That's a long way of saying. So after about six months of knowing him, I wrote him a letter and I said, uh, "Dear Fred, I think I'm really glad to be your friend. But if we're going to be friends, I think you'd be the first to agree that uh, you need to know the truth of my life." So I said I told him about depression that I'd been suffering for years and problems with my marriage, self esteem, and. And uh, ironically, it was at this time that I was winning all kinds of journalism awards. And, you know, if you would have seen me from afar, you'd think I was had a pretty great life. The inner life was quite a different story. But anyway, I said to Fred in this letter, uh, at the heart of all this, Fred, is this haunting sense that all of my life I've been trying to get my father to be proud of me. And for, for all my efforts, uh, I've never really felt like I've succeeded. So I said, a question to ask you would you be proud of me? 
And for whatever reason, I mailed it. And on July 1st, 1996, I had his reply. And it was, the answer to your question is yes, in capital letters and exclamation points, resounding yes, I am proud of you, or I will be proud of you, I have been proud of you since first we met. Uh, and then he said, nothing you could, t- or he said, I'm deeply touched that you would care to share so much of yourself with me and look forward to hearing all that you would care to share in the future. Another time he told me, your trust confirms my trustworthiness. He said, nothing he could tell me could change my yes for you. Please remember that. Your place in this life is unique, absolutely unique. Only God can arrange such mutually trusting friendships. Uh, yes, Tim, yes, love Fred. And then for the dozens of not more pieces of correspondence, email letters that went back and forth between us until he died. He almost always signed off. I'm proud of you or IPOI. How does that make you, how did it make you feel with all those, all those correspondence and then those conversations? How did it help you get through some dark times in your life? It's an interesting and uh, rather complicated question. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just, it just became, just became part of my journey. Um, uh, it wasn't an event. It wasn't the Hollywood version of you know, we're writing happily ever after. It was like Fred was part of a journey of healing. It was a very instrumental part of the journey of healing that took place over time gradually. And, um, you know, but it was like, all you know, and not only with Fred, but with other people in my life. And I think this is a very, very important uh, part of the part of the deal is that, you know, yes, I was certainly fortunate to have Fred Rogers as a friend, uh, but that if we take take inventory, I think everyone has people like that in their lives who really want to know the truth of what's going on. And I think that where we get into trouble is when we will not take up our mask and be vulnerable and authentic with even those people. And so there are other people in my life. And, and so... You know, it was a gradual process of healing, but my life became authentic because I wasn't hiding anymore. And I would, I wasn't, you know, I was very, very transparent with Fred and, and he would respond, you know, I would send him an email on a bad day and I would have him back in 10 minutes as if I was sending it, sending an email to God and God was answering my email. So it was just, it's, it was kind of hard to know what it was, what it was like in the moment, but it's really, what's really remarkable is to look back on that now. And, and in a month, you know, when I'm in a much different place in my life and look back on that now and see how remarkable it was that I had that opportunity and I had those relationships, not just with Fred, but with uh, many other trusted, trusted friends. Did it help on um, your relationship with your dad? Well, he, that is where he had a, he had a dramatic impact. Um, There's no, you know, that, that to me is pretty clear cut because after this, I'm proud of you letter, not long after Mm -hmm. he wrote to me and he wrote another one and I said, Tim, tell me about your dad. What was his childhood like? And I wrote him back and I said, well, Fred, I don't know. Uh, I've never asked. And so I started to, and, and what I learned about my dad just, you know, my dad's childhood absolutely broke my heart. You know, he had given me 10 times more as a father than I, than he had gotten from his own father. And, you know, not that I would apologize for the pain that I felt over that relationship, that there were things I got from him that I, or I didn't get from him that I needed. Um, but I started to understand uh, that he wasn't this kind of godlike figure, that he was just another suffering human being and uh, doing the best he could just kind of like me. 
there's one particular moment that I'll never forget. We were, we were driving through this little town in North Dakota where he grew up, and he had, he had been a big football and basketball star in high school. But I knew his parents weren't necessarily very supportive. And so as we were driving, I, I asked him, I said, how many times did your folks come and watch you play sports? And without missing a beat, he said twice. He said, my mother came and watched two of my basketball games. You know, and that, you know, and that had been sitting on his heart for 50 years. And which led me, you know, to remember my own childhood. And my dad never missed one of our games. I mean, he had to drive 200 miles. He was always there. And oftentimes he didn't like the way we played, but he was always there. And, um, and the, you know, so on all this pain that had been so, you know, that had been in my heart for so long started to dissipate. And what took its place was compassion and love. And when he died and um, of Alzheimer's, six or eight years ago, um, you know, all I felt was the purest form of sorrow. And I think it's a really good example of another one of Fred's sayings that I really love, which is, uh, it's much easier to love someone when you know their story. And when I learned my father's story, it just kind of transformed my relationship uh, with him. And so that was where I can really connect the dots that, you know, that letter he wrote to me and his curiosity about my father just kind of transformed that really important relationship in my life. How did it affect you as a father yourself? I mean, you really found out about your father's story and how did it affect you as a father yourself? Well, um, I had become aware of the things that my father did to me uh, or did interactions that I had with my father that were very painful. Um, and I tried to be very aware that uh, of those things uh, with, with my son. Um, and again, not always succeeding, but, uh, you know, trying to be supportive even after the bad games. Um, just kind of remembering how I was, you know, at, you know, when he was very young and the, and the issues and the feelings that I was going through. And, you know, and just, I think I was much, a much more aware, aware parent, certainly not a perfect father, but much more aware um, than I would have been otherwise. Um, and in terms of the relationship with my dad, how it was transformed, you know, I think that my, my kids just kind of um, witnessed something happening there and, and it kind of changed, subtly changed the dynamic of our relationships almost through, through osmosis. And, uh, and, you know, now I have very close relationships with them both. And so it kind of goes back to where we started. You know, all, all of this effectiveness as a husband, father, friend, it's all part and parcel of of uh, of healing as a human being and being a deeper, more compassionate human being. And uh, I think that Fred, my relationship with Fred, certainly uh, certainly helped uh, tremendously in that regard. You um, you have a second book out now too called "Getting Grief Right" with uh, Patrick O'Malley. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, it's I think I remember I, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I was listening to you talk about it before on another um, podcast. And one of I want to how. Um, mental health, how it's important. Sometimes men don't talk about mental health. Well, I, you know, I think that that might be an understatement. Um, I think maybe things are better now than they were 40 years ago. But, you know, I don't think men talk about mental health. Men don't talk about depression. Men don't men don't talk about those things um, for the obvious reasons. It just doesn't doesn't conform to these unfortunate stereotypes that we have of men in our society that we have to have the stiff upper lip. We have to be strong. We have to do this. We have to do that. When I think, you know, in, in reality, that is kind of 
cut us off from a real basic and important part of our humanity. Um, and and I think that, you know, part of, you know, we write about this in the Greek book uh, and in part uh, a really important part of the message of the, of the Mr. Rogers book is is precisely that it's it's about men kind of opening up and basically acknowledging and even embracing their own suffering and becoming aware or, or willing to share that with other people even other men and i just think that i just think that that's so important um you know and and the grief book is you know fred and henry known were kind of godfathers of the grief book uh, because a lot of the principles um that we talk about in, in the grief book stem from a lot of the things they talk or they taught and and and, and basically, it is you feel what you feel. And um, Freddie used to say, "There's no should or should not when it comes to feelings. They just their their origins are beyond our ability to know. And the best he can do is just to feel them and to express them, feel them in ways that aren't going to hurt yourself or other people. And so, in this Greek book, we just invite people. You know, and it's fairly narrowly focused to people who've experienced the death by loss. But I think it applies applies much more broadly. We invite people to just feel what they feel for as long as they need to feel it and not feel like they have to conform to some sort of artificial timetable, stages of grief or whatever you want to, um, or the expectations of society. And we invite people to do that and we invite people that, you know, and part of the ways, part of one of the ways we suggest to kind of embrace your own story and take some of the pressure off is by is by recalling this your story uh, of the relationship you had with the person you lost, and and uh, when you understand that, you know some of these feelings might make more sense. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is is that you feel what you feel, and give people permission to feel and not feel. You know, feeling difficult feelings are hard enough, mm-hmm. but I think in this world, um, I think that we compound things greatly by. By condemning ourselves for feeling the way we feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm kidding, we condemn our, for ourselves for feeling angry or sad or ashamed or afraid. Um, and it just adds a layer of suffering on, on top of what's already there that's really unnecessary. And so in the, in the grief book, uh, we really try to give people permission to be human and just kind of feel what they feel when they feel it for as long as they feel it. Well, that's um, interesting because I'm uh, really, I connect with that, with that book too myself in the sense that um, I lost um, someone, uh, my mom over the last year. So I, I understand um, she's, I've gone through the stages of grief and, um, and this is the first Christmas without her. So, and I understand I can relate to that a lot, actually. Part of what we talk about in that, in that book is that, we have we're very skeptical as to whether or not there really are stages of grief. Um, there's just grief, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, it comes in all shapes and sizes. Everyone's grief is the same, um, and there's no way you can predict it. And it, and it comes and you're up and you're down, and it's and it comes and it goes. And uh, so you know, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. And and Patrick would say, you know. If you were sitting, if you were sitting here talking to him, he'd say, "Tell me about your mother. You know, what is the story? Um, what is your story uh, with her? What were other Christmases like?" Um, and you know, and I think that in thinking along those terms, I think you 
it's going to be, it would be painful, but I think it would be, there would be a purity about it. And I'm, and the other thing that I think is really important on his basic premise is he had a, he had a kind of a um, little uh, equation, as it were, um, that something to the effect that the duration and intensity is of a person's grief is commensurate to the amount of their, their love for the person that they lost. And, and if you love deeply, you're going to grieve deeply. Um, and that's kind of, and I've, I've long believed that grieving is, is one of the most powerful expressions of love there is. And so in that sense, you don't want, you don't want grief to end mm-hmm. uh, because grief, the grief, that sadness, those feelings connect us to the person that we lost. And, and we, you know, obviously that relationship has changed but we don't want that relationship to end. Well, that's, um, that's a good way to put it. I really, I mean, thank you for the uh, condolences, my mom, too. I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm wrapping up. I think final thoughts on Mr. Rogers. Um, you know, have anything about being a dad and, and, a, and a husband? You can't be an effective husband or father unless you try to grow and heal as a human being. We all need to heal. I don't expect myself to do it perfectly anymore, mm-hmm. and but but that's fine. I mean, I I do the best I can. I try to I try to do what I can to continue to grow and heal as a human being, and and realizing that I'm going to fall short. But then again, that's that's just kind of the way it is. And uh, I've taken a lot of the pressure off myself, and uh, and part of that is as a result of the fact that Fred. Fred believed that, you know, the struggles uh, to be, to struggle is to be human. And so I'm, I'm human. And then that's, that's just, uh, I embrace that now and, and, uh, feel very, very grateful for, uh, the path that I've uh, taken in life. Where they can connect you online if they want to um, connect you where they can find your book. Um, well, the book is available. Books are available on Amazon. People can go to my website, timmadigan.net, and uh, where I've got a blog that I publish once a week. Um, and if they want to sign up for, go to the website and sign up for the for the blog, they can do that. I also have, a, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook, so I'm kind of there in all the usual places, I guess. Well, thanks, and thank you much for being on the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Joe. Happy holidays to you. And again, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's all I have for this episode. I want to thank you for Tim Madigan for being, the, being a guest on the podcast. You can find more about Tim over at timmadigan.net. You can find more about this show and links and everything we talked about at nocityonthesideline.com slash 66. Please reach out. Leave a comment. You have a question? Oh, you just want to say hello. Hey, I'm here. Leave a comment in the show notes. You can find all my contact information at nocityonthesideline.com slash contact. Also, I want to try something new. I mean, I have... um. If I listen to a podcast, I want to kind of reach out or not reach out, but let you know about it. And this is the first one I wanted to check. If you have a second to check out, it's called Dumbing Down with Dave. He's not dumb, but that's the name of this podcast. He's a great guy. It's funny, interesting. Podcast talks about truth, life, happiness, pragmatism, and the search for it all. Great guy. Really good podcast. Check it out at Dumbing It Down with Dave. You can find it on all podcast catchers. I guess wrapping up two things I want to say. I guess I'm, I'm on a couple of quotes that stuck with me in the interview about Mr. Rogers with Tim Madigan and two quotes from Mr. Rogers. What is essential is visible to the naked. What is essential is visible to the eye. One more quote from Mr. Rogers. What is ever mentionable is manageable. It's okay to talk about your feelings, especially if you're going through hard times. It's okay because people are out there at me. Trust me. I understand. <laughs> I've gone through some tough times myself until that, until now I want to say thank you for listening. And until next time, take care, give your kids a hug and tell them much you love them. One more thing is, and nobody said it. I'm proud of you. 
Howdy if you listen to the end of the podcast. Until next time, take care. God bless. See ya. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to the newsletter to receive updates of the show and helpful and useful tips. This has been a production of Foley 42 Media.